Welcome, uh, welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. And this week, I'm first joined by our plastics expert, Samuel Block, to discuss the integration of petrochemicals and oil and gas. Then I drag Matt Muscardi and Rick Marshall back to the studio for their quick takes on WeWork and disclosures. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. So, Samuel B., thanks for joining me. By the way, Sam has a blog coming out on MSCI.com about the petrochemical industry, so be on the lookout for that. He's a great writer, great analyst, great all-around individual. And recently, many large petrochemical companies have been acquired by oil and gas companies, but Royal Dutch Shell has decided to take it one step further, and it is just building its own 365-acre petrochemical facility in Pittsburgh. It's being built by 5,000 people, and once completed, it will have 3,300 trains and will produce millions of tons of little plastic pellets that can then be molded into whatever the buyer of those pellets wants them to be. The reason Shell is building a petrochemical facility is because Shell can use a natural gas byproduct called ethane, which is unleashed during fracking and in abundance in Pittsburgh. And ethane can be made into polyethylene, which is a common form of plastic. So you're going to hear in this episode a lot about inputs. And what we're referring to there is the chemical inputs provided by the oil and gas industry to make plastics, inputs such as ethane. So quickly, the Royal Dutch Shell MSCI stack card. So as part of MSCI ESG research, we rank companies using an ESG methodology. We rank them on a triple A to triple C scale, and Shell is ranked at a triple B, along with about 23% of the integrated oil and gas industry that we cover. As oil and gas companies go, Shell has a good governance squad, and it divested from its oil sands business in 2017, lowering its exposure to biodiversity risks. Those factors are underpinning our triple B rating, but this story is bigger than just Shell. It's about the future of the oil and gas industry and the petrochemical industry. Sam, we got ourselves a twofer. And tell me, is this where the future is for these two industries? Unified, synergized? Oil and gas is basically banking on the fact that demand for plastics is going to go up overall. The International Energy Agency actually came out with a a report last year stating that they expect by 2050, 50% of uh, growth for oil and gas demand will actually come through petrochemicals. And so for these companies that are constantly expanding, we're constantly seeing, you know, uh, growth in in uh, fracking and oil and gas development. Um, and for them to be able to expand, um, they're going to be ha- having to look for for new areas of where to, you know, send that send that commodity that they're producing. And so a lot of that is going into the production of petrochemicals. That's That seems weird to me. The fossil fuel industry that has been under assault from everyone because of their carbon emissions is moving to another industry that is under assault from everyone because of its waste. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like two of the largest global environmental challenges that we see out there are climate change and then all this plastic waste. And yeah, at at the source of that really is all these fossil fuel uh, companies. And it's not just oil and gas. Also, a lot of coal companies are starting to pivot more towards petrochemicals as well. Um, uh, but, you know, 
this pivot kind of towards petrochemicals might not necessarily be a sustainable option for them or even a, a viable option uh, over the long term. Yeah, that would be especially true if there was an aggressive shift away from plastics due to regulations, some of which, like uh, the EU's ban on single-use plastics, is already coming into effect. But in this case, Shell is actually taking it on themselves to build a petrochemical plant, and thus they're, they're directly competing with the petrochemical industry. So is the petrochemical industry just preparing for its eventual total merger into oil and gas, or is it reacting with some hostility or well they do like petrochemical companies i'm sure are not appreciative of of the competition but they do uh like the idea of more um more inputs uh which will drive down uh you know the the, the material costs uh for their to, to, to produce their products uh and then they'll want to differentiate themselves on on different innovation capabilities and, and you know different materials, um, they don't want to try to compete necessarily on input costs. Right, not competing with input costs by just merging with a company that creates those inputs. I guess isn't a bad way to go about it. So you've written a lot about the problems of plastics, and actually one of our trends in 2019 was the complications caused by waste, especially plastic waste. So how complicated is it analyzing a petrochemical company while also writing about the complications of plastic? I know we look at uh, we look at companies based on its industry peers, but if I could just ask a, a basic explainer question, are there quote unquote high quality ESG petrochemical companies? Well, there can be good petrochemical plastic companies, but um, those from a sustainability perspective would be the ones that are thinking more in the, the circular format when circular economy. So do they also have recycling facilities to bring back in uh, a lot of these materials that they're putting out there? Or um, are they just really banking on, you know, for oil and gas companies, they're hoping that, um, you know, you produce oil and gas, it turns into plastic, it gets that plastic eventually gets buried underground. Uh, and then you have to be, and then you have to, you know, supply more materials and feedstock so that this continues. Uh, and so, you know, the more sustainable, more circular approach would be that um, these materials go in, these inputs go in, and then they be go through their useful life, and then they get um, reused and turned much more into um, and, into those products. Again, that's that's the carbon cycle. Aren't oil and gas companies threatened by that cycle? And what I mean is is if I was an oil and gas company, I would try to wrestle control from all petrochemical companies and ensure they use my inputs to create virgin materials, not recycled materials, and then they would never recycle anything ever. So they could just keep using my inputs. So if, if you follow me in that, um, would, a, would a partnership between petrochemicals and oil and gas just be a negation of recycling? But the petrochemical industry must be aware of the looming risks caused by plastics, at least... Some must be aware of this. So are there any petrochemical companies that are actively shunning the oil and gas industry and trying to use more recycled materials or invest more in waste management facilities, for example? I wouldn't say they're full-on shunning oil and gas companies, but um, over the long term, they are somewhat decoupling with oil and gas. And they're decoupling by making investments in uh, recycling infrastructure and, uh, and and other alternative feedstocks, maybe bio, you know, for for bioplastics. So it could be like based on corn or whatever. 
And if I could just quickly contradict what I just said, why? Why do this and not just partner with the oil and gas companies for fear more will go the route of Shell and build a facility that would directly compete with petrochemicals? Why? Because, well, one, there's going to be a, a, a huge opportunity for especially recycled plastics. Um, they're, you know, consumer brands are getting a lot of pressure to use more recycled plastics in their packaging. Um, re, you know, chemical companies need to find ways to meet that demand. Yeah, but how can they meet that demand? If all of a sudden Pepsi said, we want to only use recycled plastic bottles, like 100% today, only recycled plastic bottles. I don't think there would be the sort of waste management facilities, in America at least, that could take in our nation's plastic and transform it into a Pepsi bottle. Do you have any numbers for how much investment is needed in waste management facilities to get to a point where we can properly recycle our plastic? Yeah, well, um, McKinsey, the consulting company, came out with a stat that said that uh, to achieve 50% recovery rates uh, by 2030, um, there would be an average of about 15 to 20 billion dollars of investment needed per year to, you know, uh, develop um, kept, uh, recycling infrastructure. Whether and some of that's new technology, some of it's just better sorting technologies and, and transportation, um, and that is really in contrast to uh, what we're seeing as um, 80 to 100 billion dollars of of kind of capital investments being done for the petrochemical industry. So they could. Take away some of those investments from just you know normal as it you know uh, normal case uh, expansion, and instead uh, find new venues of that investment in in recycling uh, and and developing the recycling capabilities. Most of the news coverage in this I've read has been about how the Pittsburgh community is going to be affected by this facility, either in a good way or a bad way. It's just been empathetic writing in general. And since you live in this industry on the daily, I wanted to get your empathetic take on this. How do you feel about this merger and the future of these two industries? It's a little scary. I think it's 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 um, an, an industry um, searching for ways to survive. But um, it's to me... Um, you know the petrochemicals. One of this massive uh, complex that you you cited earlier will create five thousand jobs. Those five thousand jobs are for construction. Those are not permanent jobs. And so there's a city in Pittsburgh, you know, that has had a long history of facing a lot of environmental pollution. They still today face uh, major pollution from some from some of their from some of their uh, some of the area plants. Um, and it seems like they're um, just you know, continuing on this trend of something that they've already experienced didn't work out so well for them over the long term. Um, it provided some jobs, it provided some money for the area, uh, but also created a lot of problems. It created problems when that was no longer a viable industry, and and now they're trying to reach back and find that that you know make America great again kind of uh, idea of creating all these manufacturing jobs on. Uh, heavy industry um, that uh, that is not going to be sustainable for a long term. Maybe it will be for even a generation. But what what about the next generation? And you know, I think those are considerations that you should have when you're making you know these massive investments. Well, when you're looking at a company that does make these massive investments, so the board is quote unquote supposed to be fiduciary for the stakeholders. But if they are going to be impacting a community like this, where they need the community to actually be functioning in order to operate there. 
Do you think the board should be focused on these intercommunity relations and health issues that can be caused by their plants? And um, well, absolutely, of course. And and if they, when we see that a large um, industrial complex loses that um, that kind of social license to operate, it puts a lot of pressure on regulators to act and and put the pressure back on the companies. So we're not we're not just talking about, you know, protests that can cause a slight disruption one afternoon. We're talking about, you know, these companies potentially losing a license to operate or regulators demanding that these companies um, uh, install, you know, very expensive uh, pollution prevention equipment or, you know, basically try to redesign a facility after the fact, which is could be very costly. Could you give me an ending prescription for oil and gas where, as an ESG analyst, do you think this industry should go? Well, I mean, the the underlying demands and underlying assumptions about why you know fossil fuel production is a successful venture is all those preconceptions are changing. Um, it's going to be a new dynamic. There's new regulations, new consumer demands, new products out there that are going to be searching for new materials. Um, and I think what the, the most sustainable option for these oil and gas companies is really uh, not about expansion. It's much more about, it should be much more about the capital discipline. All right, I pulled Matt and Rick back into the studio to give me as quick of a take as these two chuckleheads can muster. No stack card, just a one minute thought. First, the SEC announced it would modernize disclosures of business, legal proceedings, and risk factors under Regulation SK. This is an extremely sensitive topic. There's a 60-day comment period. We are going to discuss it later in the year once the issue is more set. But Rick, Matt, give me your super quick reaction. I think what's interesting about this this uh, uh, this proposal is is uh, that they've appear to be moving in a principles-based direction at a time when investors have been crying out for more standardization and more prescription. In theory, there's nothing to prevent companies from adopting other standards for disclosure and incorporating those in how they, um, how they notify investors about different aspects of their, their business. So, you know, this approach by the SEC, this principles-based approach by the SEC, does not preclude more standardization. It does not preclude more communication and more disclosure. It simply doesn't address those concerns. So will individual companies, will individual investors require, will, will they demand a, a greater level of, of standardization in certain key industries? That's still possible. This doesn't preclude that. Yeah, I I think I think um, to Rick's point, regardless of political ideologies or legal implications, I think the next sixty days, which is the comment period, well, fifty nine ish, fifty seven ish days, depending on um, when you're listening to this, maybe fifty days, um, are going to be uh, sort of a fascinating uh, open discussion about how investors in the U.S view their rights, view disclosure of the future, 
view what they want to know from the companies, what they don't want to know from the companies, um, view their role of in engagement because these sort of dis, the the way this shakes out um, may determine how investors look to engage with companies for the you know at least at a minimum the short term, but maybe even over the long term. So I think it's kind of a the beginning of what may be a much larger, more interesting conversation. And in related news, the WE company, which is the parent company of WeWork, released documents in preparation for its IPO. And the documents explain everything the company's about, the risks it's involved. It gives a mission statement. Of course, WeWork had a mission statement that was, we're going to save the world. But the bigger story here is its governance structure. Rick, could you give me a quick take on what you find most interesting about the WE company's governance um, we can see they're they're contemplating a three class system with disparate voting rights. Um, there aren't a lot of those out there, but they've typically created um, a, a level of imbalance between voting rights and economic exposure that has often been problematic for minority shareholders. Um, in this particular case, that's further exacerbated by the relationship between the funding entities and the management entities, and um, there's just a lot of open questions from a governance perspective here where it's hard to imagine um, answers that would give investors a lot of confidence in the, the future of this company. Like, think of it from an, I'm thinking of it from a narrative perspective. The company is selling itself. The IPO effectively is trying to sell the company to investors before it hits the market, right? And the way it's decided to sell itself includes things like there's no women on the board. It's a triple class structure. There are, you know, multiple, you know, owner stakeholders. Um, there is this weird voting incentive to for charitable donations. They're listing risks in, in the S1 document that no, you know, um, recent real estate company has ever listed, including things like, oops, we might have violated the Securities Act already and we haven't even IPO'd. All right, that's it for the week. I want to thank our special guest, Samuel Block. Remember, he's coming out with a blog soon about plastics and the petrochemical industry. I also want to thank Matt and Rick for giving their quick takes at the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, as always, please rate and subscribe. That helps out a lot. And we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. 
Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.